Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. A jam-packed show today with Live Music Friday. 12-year-old musical phenom Louis Phipps joins us. A preview of the Harvest Festival at the Leverett Village Co-op as well, paired with a nice glass of wine with co-op manager and sommelier Ken Washburn. And our continued celebration of Khalees Smith's new book, it's written weird. with Holly Black. Sir Morian is what it's called. Khalees will be talking with one of our Media Lab fellows from NEPM. But first... Time for a Local Hero Spotlight with Jacob Nelson from CESA, the local hero, folks. And what's your name? Emily Landek. And we're here at Riverland Farm in Sunderland, where, full disclosure, back in 2002 when I moved to Western Mass, was my first farm. Didn't know what a farm share was. I barely spent any time on a farm as somebody who grew up in the eastern part of the state. And we immediately jumped on and became members of Riverland Farm, getting fresh vegetables all throughout the summer. No longer doing the summer farm share, though. Correct. We do a winter share for the months of November, December, and January. And then we sell to lots of other grocery stores, co-ops in the area, which is actually where you would mostly find our produce. And now we're going to go take a tour of what is one of the main crops of your winter share, which is sweet potatoes. Delicious sweet potatoes, Sweet potatoes! We pick up all the sweet potatoes out of the field. They all go into crates and then they come into this high tunnel or this greenhouse. This is actually our propagation greenhouse that then like flips over into storage curing. And the sweet potatoes have to cure for like a minimum of two weeks before we even sell them. Part of that is having to do with trying to make their skins a little bit tougher. You know, like if you see a banged up sweet potato in the grocery store, it's like a little less appealing. So we try and toughen up their skins, but it also actually makes the sugars consolidate a little bit more. It makes them sweeter. Is this a common thing that a lot of people do with sweet potatoes or is this something that you've kind of developed? Curing is really common. Uh-huh. I think everybody probably has their own system. Yeah. Are you just doing sweet potatoes or are you doing sweet potatoes and yams? Just sweet potatoes. So yams are not actually, the I don't think we would family. be able to grow them here. They're not the yeah. same family um, and they're very, very much a tropical Why do we think of them as the same? I think so many people do. Because um, they look very similar. Like they have similar textures, similar sweetness, and are often confused in supermarkets where people don't necessarily know the difference. So sometimes you'll get sweet potatoes and they're actually yams. Usually when you find them and they have left fibers in them, they're yams and not sweet potatoes. It's like when you accidentally buy a plantain thinking you're going to get a banana. Yeah, but then you can fry the plantain. That's true. What's What's your favorite way to eat sweet potatoes? Oh my gosh. So we did start growing a new variety, which is the Japanese sweet potato. I love those! Those are the best! <laughs> I'll show you. Uh. They are purple skin, white flesh, and I honestly just like put them whole in the oven. They're creamy and delicious, but otherwise, I've used them for everything. Like I use them, some people use them as substitutes for bread a lot, like in Whole30 diets, all that stuff. But it did make me realize like, oh, actually like put an egg on a slice of a sweet potato. It's amazing. You know, like you can just kind of like put it in anything. It makes a really nice Benedict. It's really good. You want to see the unveiling? Let's unveil the sweet potatoes in this high tunnel hothouse where they're curing and getting even sweeter. Everything that you can see like all the way up to the end there is Fully crates of sweet potatoes. Yeah, milk crates, big milk crates. Big milk crates, filled yeah. Filled with sweet potatoes. Yeah, bulb crates, I think, is maybe how people would think of them. We run them through our washer so they get some water on them, which actually helps with the curing process. Like, humidity can actually really help with the curing process. But yeah, please, you want to see the. Let's go the see the Japanese ones. Yes. Yeah. And there's trucks that just go through the neighborhood selling them just roasted. Like you can buy them by the bag, wrapped in foil, and yes. just eat them just it's like by chestnuts. themselves. Yes. It's really cool. They're really different. And when they come out of the ground, they're like hot pink. 
and it's crazy. They like then cure to be kind of purple, but then They're you can like see the flesh is like Oh yeah, snap white, one and a half and there is it is. Crazy. Yeah. The texture is so different from American sweet potatoes. Like it's just, it tastes thick and custardy. Yeah. And they're just like a little bit sweeter. They're so, so nice on their own. I rarely ever do anything to them, but I do sometimes substitute these for regular potatoes in stew because they're just sweet enough. And they don't melt as quickly as sweet potatoes. They yeah. hold their form a little bit better, like a regular potato. Yeah, yeah. How are customers liking them? I'm imagining that people might not be as accustomed to them. Totally. Yeah. It's definitely like an education moment. And it's one of those things where like with the CSA, you have to be like, trust me, just like try it, uh -huh. right? You just trust me and try it. And then they come back and they're like, do we get more of those? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so happy that so many, that farms around here have started growing them because it was so hard to find yeah. them. Yeah, these can be for you. Oh. <laughs> Give the gift of Japanese sweet potatoes this holiday season. Every kiss begins with K. Khalees is thrilled. I'm so happy. This is not going to influence our coverage. No. Hard-hitting journalism here at Riverland Farm in Sunday. I try real hard not to just make them into pie because the other thing that I've started swap doing is swapping those in for sweet potatoes when I make sweet potato pie because it makes the texture even better. Yeah, but what mm. color does it come out? It still comes out like pretty oh. like orange because I do a mix. I don't okay. do, yeah. it's not purely Mirakamis. It's just there for like balancing out some of the sweetness and improving the texture and it does perfectly in both. As much as I don't want to leave this high tunnel greenhouse because it's so nice and warm in here. But now it's refreshing when we come outside, like when you're in the sauna and then you go outside into the snow. We're back to the fall. Yeah, but it's a beautiful day. Do you cut, sell, or use the leaves from the sweet potatoes? Um, it's so funny. The first farm I worked at, the farmer who I farmed with, he taught me about that. And they're amazing. It's delicious. They are. We don't sell it. I have never actually like leaned into what that would look like. I think that they're also very tender, and so I think yes. it wouldn't be a very easy, like, wholesaleable. I think if we had a summer CSA, I would definitely force it on people. Oh, yeah. What yeah. would you do with those leaves? You saute them. You stir-fry them. They're used a lot in Southeast Asia and Western Africa in stews and stuff. They're just like a nice kind of stewing green. People sleep on them because they're, they go for the tuber, and they forget that there's this whole, they, or don't know that there's this whole other part of the plant that is edible and actually really nice. It's green tasting because it is green but like they're soft and velvety yeah mm. kind of like a better spinach yeah i just want to give a shout out to Khalees for always bringing up the interesting parts of plants that you didn't know that you could eat but you can all of the times that i have trusted Khalees, i have been very satisfied so just dear listeners i want to share that with you if you're curious about japanese sweet potatoes or their leaves Trust Khalees. Yeah, trust she Khalees. She does know what's up. How big is Riverland Farm? How much farm are you farming? We grow on 40 acres of certified organic land. We have this kind of plot where we're standing is about 12 acres. And then the rest of that acreage is made up with eight other sites throughout the valley. So some just down the road and then all the way up to Montague, kind of right across from Red Fire Farm. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people know about, but maybe if you're not ensconced in the world of farming here in Western Mass, contiguous farming land is hard right. to come by. Yeah, absolutely. And then you compare us to Eastern Mass and it's not even, a, you know, I mean, we seem contiguous yeah. to them, you know, <laughs> it's really patchwork. I mean, you look at the town map of Sunderland, the lines just like, they basically are like zigzag diagonal lines of like all these different families that 
that own all this different land. And so, you know, we have one piece of land that we have three land landowners on it. So we pay three different checks for one piece of land. So that's fun. <laughs> and sweet potatoes are a big crop for you. Brussels sprouts, yeah. which we'll go see some folks harvesting for some sure. of those in a couple minutes here are another one. What else are some of the main things that you're growing? Right now, um, we have a lot of carrots. We do a lot of like storage carrots. Um, we have a lot of cabbage in the fall. We also often will have beets, though they really struggled this year. This was not a beet year. They don't like no. swimming. They don't like their feet to be wet. And there's a lot of diseases that beets kind of take on really readily when it's really wet. So we don't have beets this year, but it's okay. Other people do. It's been an odd growing year, you know, and so we're kind of like, we're really, the sweet potatoes loved it. The carrots loved it. The Brussels sprouts are doing great. So we're kind of like leaning into those few things. Tell us about how the, the wet summer, the flooding affected Riverland here on 47 in Sunderland. We do have a lot of land along rivers, but the river, the Connecticut River did not come up quite high enough to get to our fields, which was great. Thank goodness. However, people might remember that there were a couple different weekends in a row where we got over four inches of rain in a matter of hours. And so actually where we're standing, you can kind of see, surprisingly, where the Brussels sprouts are was under a foot of water wow. for 24 so, hours, Not twice. because of flooding, but because of rain, rain. that came. Rain. Wow. It was insane. We lost about 75% of our watermelons, which is one of our biggest summer crops mm -hmm. um, because they literally would just melt in the field. They just yeah. destroyed too themselves. Water. Too much water, Wait, not enough melon. Too much water yes. for your watermelon is not great. And they actually become less sweet. It was not a watermelon year. Should we go um, meet the Brussels sprouts? Yeah. All right, let me shove these in the washroom and then we can hop in a car and just drive down. Unless cool. you want to ride a tractor. What? Um, kind of. <laughs> is that an option? I mean, <laughs> can we, I don't think we can all fit on a tractor. Can all fit on it. Oh, you guys can come in. Come see the washroom. Now we're going into the the washroom at Riverland Farm in Sunderland with Emily. Oh, they're about to start a big crate wash. Sanitize all of the crates that we use. But yeah, this is Tori. She Hello. runs our washroom. Hi. Are you um, Monty? I am. I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Otherwise, how would I know? She's right? Fangirl's hard. That's good. What were you that listening to? Stuff. That you um, shut off. Talking Heads Radio. Oh, yeah. Keep it light and fun in here if we can. Fun. Get a groove. Get a groove, yeah. Nice to meet you. That's the first time somebody told me they followed me on Instagram. I feel, I know, I guess so. I didn't even know, I don't even do anything on Instagram. I got memed on Instagram when I was in New Orleans because I had a shirt on from Kung Fu Dumplings in Provincetown. And the back of the shirt says, I hate dumplings. Just kidding, can you imagine? So some random person saw me wearing this in New Orleans, shared it on their huge Instagram account, and then it was like shared like hundreds of thousands of times. Whoa. Then it became a meme in and of itself because somebody replaced dumplings with frogs. I hate frogs, just kidding, can you imagine? From this like frog fan Instagram account. So my children are all like, Dad, you're like Instagram famous now. All because I wore this weird shirt to the Preservation Hall in New Orleans. It's all women on your farm. It is. We are a women-run farm, and I think that attracts women. Was that by design or by chance? Maybe both. We'll say both. I think it's awesome. I feel like it's one of the most like empowering things to be like, yeah, this farm is this 40-acre farm is run by women, and not just like run, like it is like done by women, and that is, I think, in a traditionally very masculine world in general, but also like field, no pun intended. Um, it's really cool to be able to be like, yeah, we're women run and we, you know, this big group of women kicks butt every day. Hell yeah. Go in one car? Sure, let's go. Shotgun. Can we squeeze in here? I think right. we can. I forgot there was a car seat. 
Is that a car seat for your baby? What about my child? Yeah, that's my two-year-old. You just bought this farm in 2020, which is a great year to get involved in this sort of thing. Absolutely. How is it balancing uh, motherhood and farminghood? You know, it's a challenge, but also yes. having a kid is the best thing in the world. Oh, no. It's been so cool to like have him come into this world and get to like he comes down to the farm every once in a while and he has like you know he's like the the crew's biggest fan club he loves all of them they all love him too which is fun there's big river chestnuts where they roast chestnuts and now we're driving down 47 to the other to the brussels sprout field for riverland what are some of the other farms that are your neighbors here emily so this is Pachesnik land. He's since passed away, and, and one of his former employees is now running running the farm right now, which is great. Um, That's me not putting my seatbelt on, everybody. Me, I'm, I'm going to put my seatbelt on so we don't hear the beeping. It's probably me, too. Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> oh, it gets really angry. It really yells at you. See, it wasn't you, it was me. Here we are, right next to the police station. Do they help? That'd be fun. That's a good question. <laughs> Writ large. I guess this isn't the field that we pay three landowners for, but it is one of our larger tracts of land. Huge tracts of land. And we got it a couple years ago and it's been so clutch to have it so close to the farm. Cause in the past, so much of our larger tracts of land have been like way up in Montague. And so we're like doing these large, big blocks of things all the way up there. And can you imagine just driving crops back and forth? <laughs> oh man, it was, it's such a pain. Um, and so it's been so nice to have these bigger oh, yeah. tracks. Every time you say tracts of land, I think of Monty Python, and I'm sorry. I uh, have already thought of that. And it was, the amount of times was, we quote Monty Python in this farm is kind of huge. Shameful. Tracts of land. It sank into the swamp. So I built a second one that sank into the swamp. So I built a third one that burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one. This is why Monty had a CSA farm share here. <laughs> I love the huge tracts of land. So yeah, this is the Brussels sprouts, or this is one of the Brussels sprout fields. This section that we're in is partially harvested. And so we do two different types of harvests for the Brussels sprouts, full stock, right? So you see that in grocery stores, it's definitely more of the like trendy way to buy a Brussels sprout, right? It's like a, buying a bunch of carrot instead of loose carrots. It's pretty and they're like two feet tall yeah. and you have all the sprouts on them. They look like a, some sort of weapon. Absolutely, you, buy like that. you could club of, someone with them. Like a lightsaber. It's a weird nubby lightsaber. You know, some people grow purple Brussels sprouts. You could have two varieties of lightsabers. Oh my God. So then you can save your Sith or Jedi. <laughs> you are not a Jedi yet. And then the other way that we sell them is, is loose. And that's what these guys are doing right now. Um, we can go up there and say hi to them. Yeah. What? What are you still, you're working on the farm that you used to own? Farmer Megan, hi. you're my first farmer. Good. Good to see you again. It's great to see you too. Megan Arquin, previous owner of Riverland Farm. Check it out. What are you doing? Uh, we are hand-picking Brussels sprouts off of stalks. If you look out ahead, we, we came through here and blitzed this field. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, looks like so, you did a good job. Buckets and buckets of like loose little tiny Brussels sprouts, you know? And then they all go to the grocery store. And I, I see people display them in like big bins, basically, and people just scoop Brussels sprouts for themselves. Who else are you farming with? Who are these folks? Well, this is Megan. Hi. Hi Megan. This is May over here. Hi, May. This is Dilma and Gladys. Hola. And, but yeah, these guys are trucking along in the sprouts today. I don't want to put you on the spot. No. Yes. Was it a hard decision to uh, sell the farm and then <laughs> come back and work on the farm? No, it wasn't. It wasn't hard. You know, I thought 
what might that feel like? But Emily and I have worked together for a number of years before we sold the farm, and so I knew I. She's actually I've told I've told her this, but she's one of my favorite people to farm with. So uh-huh. that felt like an easy decision. Yeah. <laughs> so that and it was really important to be supportive to the transition and see this farm into its new you know iteration, and so that felt really important to me. And then. It just kind of made sense. So it's a really nice day out here. It's sunny. But this is the time of year, uh, Megan and Emily, when you're talking about like every day you're waking up and like it might frost tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And oh, yeah. so there's so, sort of this, maybe snow next week. Yeah, right. there's certain, certain elevations. You know, will it, won't it emotional whiplash of yeah. fall is the moment of farming that we're in right now. Even like last week, someone was like, yeah, we got a frost next week. And I was like, ah, not ready yet. You know, but we saw the sweet potatoes in the greenhouse. And that's one of our big pushes pre-frost because they are, are not frost tolerant. Whereas something like Brussels sprouts, they're kind of on the edge, a little bit lower temperatures they'll handle. Carrots, they can handle really cold. They actually get better with the cold. So we start to look at this time of year where we're like, we're bringing some stuff in. You know, we're kind of like prioritizing, like what are we gonna bring in? What can we like hold off? I do feel like every morning I look at my weather app and I'm like pretty sure that it's gonna be 32 tomorrow. (laughs) They're gonna be like, surprise, frost tonight. Unlike your home garden where a frost might mean that most things are done for the year, there's still a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. As the year wraps up here. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, Thanksgiving is actually a really big market for um, at least the food that we grow. Um, and so these next couple of weeks actually are really, really big push. Do you cover crop any of the land that you've got? We're actually standing on the little bit that we did cover crop, which you can see there's a clover underneath it. Yeah, yeah. So when the brassicas are really small in August, usually we can get a clover down. So you want to like clean them, clean them up, and then you get clover down and then it'll actually, this will grow out really nicely in the spring. Other parts of it where we're like really doing this very last fall harvest, we won't get cover crop in. But it is part of the other drive for like sweet potatoes getting out of the ground. Pretty much anything getting out of the ground is like how much cover crop can we get in? Because we want that land to both have coverage in the wintertime, but also then for nutrients in the in the future. Emily, if people want to sign up for the winter farm share here at Riverland Farm in Sunderland, is are there still slots available? Yes, it's going fast, but there are a few spots left and the first distribution is next week. If you don't happen to slide into one of the last open shares for the winter CSA at Riverland Farm, there's also a bunch of other local farms that offer winter shares and you can find out all about those at buylocalfood.org. Sweet potato. Hey, baked potato. No. No uh, Brack fans and okay, it's okay. Brack from Brack. Space Ghost Coast. Yeah, Coast? Yes, he has three albums and they're all gold. Mashed potatoes. Hey, potatoes. The amount of love that I have for this album hey, is just potatoes. alarming. <laughs> a reminder that CISA is an underwriter of NEPM. Later in the show, a preview of the Harvest Festival in Leverett, paired with a wine from Monsant, and Live Music Friday with 12-year-old Louis Phipps and friends. Up next, NEPM's Media Lab talks with our very own Kalee Smith about her brand new book. I'm waiting for the day when it stops feeling weird. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. <laughs> Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. <laughs> This month, we've been bringing you conversations with Western Mass authors of books for kids, and we're having young people themselves from NEPM's Media Lab conduct those interviews. Today, a voice familiar to Fabulous 413 listeners, reading from the new picture book that she co-authored. But Morian was sad he'd never met his father, Sir Aglavale. 
Your father went on a quest and he hasn't yet returned, his mother told him. I will go on a quest to find him, said Morian. And so he and his horse headed north over land and sea across Europe into England. But no one he met had any news of his father. Nada. Zip. Zilch. And all of the knights he met seemed to want to fight. But Morian won every time. But winning wasn't everything. Morian was homesick. Questing was hard. Still, Morian refused to give up. That was our very own Khalees Smith reading an excerpt from Sir Morian, the legend of a knight of the round table. Khalees wrote the book with her friend, best-selling author Holly Black, who joined us earlier this week. Khalees was interviewed, or was that last week? I don't even remember last that. Week. Khalees was interviewed by Jeremiah Merced, a student at Springfield's Putnam Vocational Technical Academy. Jeremiah asked Khalees how long it took to publish the book. The answer, about six years. Well, the pandemic kind of took a lot of time out of this process, but I don't think either of us really understood because Holly does YA novels. And again, Mm. like I do poetry, it's not hard to get my work out, but we didn't quite understand how much longer the process takes, like getting an illustrator, like having them attached to the project, how long it takes for like their art to become a part of it. Like after all of the stuff that we had done, we were done with our part of the script in 2018. But it wasn't until like basically last year that the whole book got finalized. <laughs> wow, that's a really long process. It's yes, crazy it crazy when you said twenty seventeen. Damn, I was only like can't even think about how old I was. It was so long ago. <laughs> but wow. Yeah, it's been a long process. There's a lot of stories about the White Knights in King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table lore. How did you feel about writing the only black knight in this court and making the narrative a children's story? Well, I think it's really important to, especially for the way that people think about medieval times, to try and broaden that for people. It's so Eurocentric. People forget that like, literally the rest of the world was happening at the same time with, in a lot of cases, like civilizations that were way more advanced than Europe. But trade routes existed. People from middle Europe, like France, England, were trading with folks from Northern Africa, from Southern Africa, from all over Asia. It's important to remember that that's true. So when we encountered this romance, we were like, oh, wait, there's a black knight of the round table and it's canon? Okay, cool. There's paintings of Sir Morian. There's other fanfic of Sir Morian, but this is the one that's based off of the actual romance, I think discovered in the 14th century initially. And he's the only one. (laughs) He's the only black member of the round table, which has so, so many knights, like just a pile of them. But finding that one needle, we thought, was really worth sharing. I found it uh, curious how there was like only one black knight because we were doing our research about it and it was like when we came across it, it was like damn most of the knights were white so to see one black knight that was like oh yeah this is this is interesting to me mm. and it's, it's different mm-hmm. but then you see like there's other points like in history where this happens like you see like the story of yasuke who was the one samurai who's part of um oh nobunaga's um, set of, of knights. And that's real too. Like, it's interesting and important to see where those intersections happen, even if it's just the one person who got documented. That one person being documented, even though, you know, 
Arthurian tales are mostly fiction, not actual history. But when you find that one connection point, it's important to spread it around and make people understand that, like, no, these we were here. We were also here. People knew it wasn't like Africa was being discovered. They'd always been involved in these things, too. Knowing this is a retelling of the tale of um, Sir Morin, uh, what was the process in doing this research? Because I would assume that there's a lot of research that would go into this topic. <laughs> well, we, Holly Black and I both have a pretty good base understanding of like the basic nights and the basic timeline of Arthur. He's born of Mab, like roams around the Welsh countryside, has um, some mishaps, shall we say, and forms the round table after uh, taking control of Wales. But for this particular one, we especially like with Morian's connection to uh, Northern Africa, we wanted a lot of the illustrations to reflect more of that than the European side, because even when you see paintings of Sir Morian, you'll see him in a European set of armor, but then you'll also see him in Moorish garb. So we wanted to make sure that there were some elements of both medieval uh, Middle Eastern history and, and costuming in it as well as as European um, and then just digging into this rather short romance itself was interesting to say the least we got a lot out like we had to simplify like just like super super concentrate this story to make it easier to digest for the age of kids that we were looking at mm-hmm. so there was a lot of of editing <laughs> and a lot of <laughs> reframing but it still kind of hits the main points of what happens in that original story of Sir Morian. So I know you mentioned you cut some things out. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> can you give us an insight on like what things you would have cut out in the story? In classic Arthurian fashion, there's like side quests all over in Sir Morian. Like mm-hmm. when Morian meets Gawain and Lancelot and they decide to travel together both Gawain and Lancelot get distracted by other things and like run off and leave Morian in the seaside town <laughs> to do his own research basically and like that, there's a couple of pages of that and the, and the whole things that they get up to as well like Gawain accidentally kills this knight from this keep but ends up sleeping at the keep and he ends up in jail like Lancelot's off fighting beasts in the woods and in the meantime Sir Morian's still looking for his dad in what on the paper is an actual racist town where like the people will not talk to him because he has the mark of Cain. Like, it's not until he joins back up with the knights that they actually give him information. It's a whole like interesting scene that they they're like, hey, he's wandering through town looking for information, and people are literally slamming doors in his face. We decided maybe not to add that part. <laughs> Because there wasn't enough time to get into it. But it's like, it's interesting the different things that they got up to in basically all of that side questing that they had to do. While reading this story, it stood out to me that Sir Morian envied and fought with Sir Lancelot. But Sir Gawain tried to mediate peace in the group. Why do you think it's important to show kids how to work as a team? You're going to have to work with other folks your entire life, pretty much. Even being out in the wilds doing things like mostly on your own there's no point where you're only going to have to work with yourself forever you will have to learn to work with other people at some point so let's get that in early (laughs) shall we (laughs) learn to work together through your differences as much as you can 
I wanted to ask, uh, what would you give, you know, people my age? Uh, what advice would you give us? Oh my gosh. Whoo. Did I not just say it? I was like, work together. No, um, do I have advice? I don't know. I think I'm still learning a lot from, from the world around because like, I often feel like I kind of don't know what I'm doing. Just, I think my biggest piece of advice is ask questions. Just keep asking questions because even if people don't have answers for you, finding answers that work for you is probably going to be better than you just floundering in the dark. Thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> sure. Um, I think that hearing that and people being able to hear what, you're, what you have to say is really important. Khalees Smith is the author of Sir Morin, Legend of the Night at the Round Table. Khalees, thank you so much for joining us today. It was oh, an honor. No problem, Jeffrey. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> this is a production of the NEPM Media Lab. And that was NEPM Media Lab's Jeremiah Merced. He and his team put this interview together along with videos that you can find at NEPM.org. We'll bring you the final interview from our Media Lab producers next Friday. And later in the show, Live Music Friday with another very talented young person, 12-year-old Louis Phipps, who has an album release party happening at the Parlor Room in Northampton tonight. Up next, Raising a Glass to the Harvest and the Harvest Festival in Leverett. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're back at the Leverett Village Co-op for our Wine Thunderdome, where usually two wines enter and one wine leaves, but we're doing one wine enters versus Fall Harvest Festival this Sunday at Leverett Village Co-op. do versus, though? Just do them both. Everyone wins this time. Everyone's going to be a winner, but we are here with Ken Washburn, who is a sommelier and also the manager of this wonderful only store in Leverett on Rattlesnake Gutter Alley Road. Road. Yeah, before we get into the... Fall Harvest Festival, and your association with our guest, Professor Richard Little and Armored Mudballs. Because <laughs> there's a sticker on your laptop. It's wonderful. <laughs> That's how we knew you had an association with our previous guest. What are we drinking, Ken Washburn? Um, we're drinking the Can Blau. Um, it's a red blend from Monsanto in Spain, and it is Grenache, Syrah, and Carignan. I'm thinking fall, darker fruits, beautiful label, beautiful trees, which they really showed up and surprised us this year. I know, year. we were, Khalees like, and I have been like, talking hey, about this. you're throwing a party. Oh, whoops, we should maybe decorate. I was one of those classic New Englanders that was like, well, I guess this year's fall foliage is a wash. Oh my God, that tree's amazing! Yeah, <laughs> and it's great because I think normally, you know, the fall festival this weekend, I think normally we wouldn't, we would have a lot of leaves on the ground by now, and it's it's gorgeous. Let's drink a little bit of this wine and talk about that. It has all grapes that I like in it, and yeah. it's from a region that I love. And Monsant is, a, uh, it's contrary to the uh, name of the very problematic chemical manufacturer has nothing to do with Monsanto. <laughs> that we know of. That we know of, right. Black cherry. I love the way that smells. Yeah. There's a good funk to it. Mm-hmm. A little earthy, a little spicy. Mm-hmm. What do you want this with? This is the first thing I've put in my body today for what it's worth, so. <laughs> uh, blueberry muffin, maybe, some bacon, um, coffee, maybe. Some sort of meat with prunes, yeah. something stewed with dried fruit stew virtually any sort of not too spicy and stew and not tomato based stew right what it's i would do with this is i would make a beef stew using this as the wine mm. which is a good rule of thumb you don't have to get crap wine to put in your stews no. if you have crap wine and want to put it in your stews that's fine mm. oh. it's better than drinking it but. but it goes against like all of the principles of literally everything people have been saying to you for the past 50 years including julia child who's like use the wine you drink <laughs> not gonna be ready to fail you're not gonna learn how to 
cook. That's what that little lecture is all about. I'm getting like a spiced plum with this. I'm also getting kind of like a, like a woody kind of thing. <laughs> woody. You're my favorite deputy. That went right over my head. <laughs> Excuse me, my name's Woody Boy. Woody? Hi, I'm Sam Malone. This is gonna sound weird, but you know, to be a sommelier is to say weird things about wine. Oh, of course. It's like when you chew on your coffee stirrer. I think that's the tannins and also a little bit of spice. <laughs> I love when people are so specific about their specific <laughs> wine things. That's what makes this all worthwhile. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's got that it's got that drying effect from the tannins, but to me it's almost part of the taste as well. Yeah cheap coffee stir or wood in a good way. This is really nice. It's always been a favorite and everyone comes in and talks about the label, which we've got a iridescent foil situation going on here. Yeah, it looks like a silver cross made out of diamonds surrounded by blue diamonds. Kind of holographic. Yeah, very autumnal. Something Lady Gaga would wear on her as a headdress. I'm of the deep but this is gonna be a perfect wine for any sort of hearty, mm -hmm. especially meaty, mushroomy, fall-related mm -hmm. yeah. food. Khalees, you just got some mushrooms in there. I did, I got, there was this giant, beautiful pile of Hen of the Woods, and I had to take some home because mm. I've just been in mushroom, constant mushroom mood, <laughs> and it wasn't just going to Mike Oterra that did that. We were drinking on the patio, and two dog walkers are going on a hike, are looking at, like, why are you drinking wine at this time? What's your name? Leslie. Where are you from? Leverett. Jackie from Sunderland. We've now shared this wine with you to yes. share the love. Yeah. It's like dessert wine. It's after the coffee and the muffin, and it was primo. <laughs> I will say it doesn't taste like a dessert wine, but it is your dessert yes. today. Exactly. It, is, it, does, it was it is our not dessert. And what did you think? No, it's very lovely. It's very fruity. Uh huh. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'll give you um, a little bit of energy to go for your hike. Well, that's right. If I don't fall asleep. <laughs> We're at the Leverett Village Co-op, the only store in Leverett with Ken Washburn, the manager and sommelier who curates this beautiful, albeit small, wine selection here at this beautiful, albeit small, Village Co-op. And this Sunday, we'll be celebrating fall here. What is happening this Sunday, Ken? We are having a fall festival. Um, it's gonna be from noon to four, and we have so many different kinds of events. I keep hearing about new things that get added, and I'm amazed every time. So for, we're gonna have horse-drawn carriage rides. We're gonna have horses from Muddy Brook Farm offering wagon rides, starting at the co-op and going up Rattlesnake Gutter Road, just right up there. Mm. That's gonna be really fun. We are going to have pumpkin painting for the kids. We're what if I wanna paint a pumpkin? And for Monty. We're going to have chestnuts from Big River Chestnuts down in Sunderland. We're gonna be roasting them right, right out front here. That's gonna be really wonderful. Chestnuts roasted on open fire. Chestnuts roasting. Too early for that. That's a little too all. early for that. We're gonna have s'mores. We are going to have free samples. I know that Cabot is coming to bring some cheese. Oh, Cabot, speaking to co-ops. It's like one of the oldest and one of the biggest, biggest. co-ops, but they do so much for our dairy people here in New England. Yeah. We are going to have great live music. We're going to have Myrtle Street Klezmer and Silverback Swing. Kind of a mm. Django Reinhardt inspired jazz situation. Mm. We're going to have, have a raffle for a beautiful basket. And one of the things in the raffle is the wine that we tasted a couple weeks ago. So oh, nice. The La Cuba. Yeah. So. Yeah. Apparently there's going to be a stilt walker, there's going to be massage, fairy hair, which I think is when you get tinsel in your hair. I know, it just keeps going and going, right? Like, uh, <laughs> What if you don't have hair? 
Welcome to another riveting episode of The Bald and the Beautiful. You can just have tinsel on your head. Yeah, I'm sure I we mean, have some sure. kind of adhesive in the back I think we could use. <laughs> We're also going to have tool sharpening by donation. Uh, really, I think it's any any tool you think could be sharpened. Like knives too? Yeah, I think knives too. That's a good value, people. They used to do this and they may be still at Thorns in Northampton where like getting ready into extreme carving season. It's time to, <laughs> it's time to split your wood for the winter. Or yeah, if you need your just kitchen knives sharpened, sometimes you can go get these nice kitchen knives resharpened if you don't have that capacity or knowledge at home. Yeah. Yes. Our kitchen's going to be open. Brian is going to be doing kind of a seasonal menu and I am going to be pouring high, hard cider samples right here on our patio. Is this the first harvest festival or does this happen every year? This is our first harvest festival. <gasps> At least in the past 10 years. And Ken Washburn here from the Leverett Village Co-op, I know you don't know what this is, but I think we would be remiss not to say that there is something called worm hunts that is going to happen <laughs> here at the Harvest Festival amidst all the other things that are happening on Sunday. Yes. Which it's, brings it's, us to wait. the dirt, which brings us to the mud. Tell us your connection to our guest from yesterday's show, Professor Richard Little, and his evangelism about the importance of armored mud balls. Well, I was lucky enough to be one of his geology students. I think it was either uh, <laughs> fall 2020 or spring 2021. Um, it was an online class at GCC, and it was awesome. It was actually my first foray back into college after dropping out to study wine over 10 years ago. So you went from wi studying wine intensely, studying armored mud balls. Exactly, because you know, they're very closely related. For those who don't remember what an armored mud ball is from yesterday's show, what is it? Oh God, if he's listening, he's probably going to shake his head. I got an A, okay? So I'm, I'm here to defend my A. An armored mud ball is when a clump of mud in the Jurassic period gets rolled into a stream, picks up pebbles as it rolls along the bottom of the stream, then is covered by a landslide or other action, then it becomes lithified, which means it turns to rock, and then we were lucky enough in Turner's Falls to have beautiful, they, we have beautiful examples right here and where we live in Turner's, um, where you can see the mud and all the little pebbles surrounding it, like a little, like a fairy ring. Me. Oh, wow. They're amazing. And Massachusetts, we have the best examples in the world. And you only have until five o'clock today to write a letter to support making armored mud balls the official state, state sedimentary structure. That is correct. <laughs> no states are as sedimental as we are here in Massachusetts. Oh, sedimental? Yeah. Nice. Really? I feel like all the states that border the Mississippi would have something to say about yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, uh, the Appalachian states, perhaps. Suffice it to say, it's weird and amazing and shows how connected we are in the 413 that the sommelier who works here at the Leverett Village Co-op, took a class from our guest yesterday who was in a totally disparate field of study about a very weird object that you can find most prominently here where we live in Massachusetts. I, I mean, love it here. It's really easy to go see them if, you, if you're in the area. They're right in uh, Unity Park yeah. uh, by the river. And go see the armored mud balls on Sunday late morning and then come here. <laughs> to the Harvest Festival Sunday afternoon at the Leverett Village Co-op. 12 to four, we do have a rain date, which is the next Sunday. Ain't gonna rain. Yeah, I've been watching Dave Hayes like a hawk because I don't know if you knew this, but Franklin County in July was the wettest place in the country. I Whoa. did not know that. Did Dave Hayes say that? Um, no, I, think I believe I you though, Ken. Maybe the Boston Globe said it. I'm not yeah. sure. I can never get past their paywall, but um, <laughs> we'll get on that for I the next say, one drive. I will say that multiple sources have confirmed that Franklin County, Mass, was the wettest, <laughs> wettest place in the country in July. Wow, that gives us another thing to look into, Ken. You're welcome. Yeah, we're continuing to open the onion of our wonderful area. And one more time, this delicious wine that we're drinking is. It's the Con Blau Red Blend, which is um, Grenache, Syrah, and Carignan. And it's from Monsanto. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. What a pleasure. 
In response to Ken's claim about Franklin County being the wettest place in America for the month of July, the National Weather Service says more than 21 inches of rain fell in Conway, Massachusetts in the month of July, making it the wettest place not just in the whole country, but Canada as well. So the whole continent. Well, I don't know about Mexico, though. Fair. fair. And a shout out to the kids at the Conway Grammar School who I visited today to talk about hunger issues and the March for the Food Bank. They're doing a solidarity march. Up next, Live Music Friday with 12-year-old Louis Phipps, who has an album release party at the Parlor Room in Northampton tonight. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Kali Smith, and it's Live Music Friday. And joining us is Louis Phipps, a 12-year-old singer-songwriter. In 2021, he released an album of original music, Louis Phipps and Friends, We Are Together, with 18 adult professional musicians, including Chris Thiele of Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers and NPR fame, Sierra Hull, The Suitcase Junket, and last week's music guest, Corey Lightman from Cloudbelly. Louis' music has been featured by the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, NPR's Morning Edition, NPR's Live From Here. And he's got an album release party at the Parlor Room in Northampton tonight. He's joined by Anand Nayak on guitar, Paul Kohansky, and resident Live Music Friday drummer J.J. O'Connell. His third appearance on Live Music Friday. More than anyone else has been on this show for the music portion. Corey's catching up to you, though. Yeah, Corey Laidman's catching up. Louis, let's do a song, and then we'll chat. All right. Of his phone, took the load of the late fall stone. When my father found a prize, sons and dwindles over the broth of a poor so pitch black. Fell frowning, rounds and rounds of spades and frowning. Oh, 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 Let them be left, yo. Let them be left, wildness and wind. Long with the weeds in the wilderness, yeah. Oh, 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 oh,
and friends, Louie playing acoustic guitar and singing, and Anna and I playing the electric, Paul Kahansky on the bass, and J.J. O'Connell playing the drums. That was unbelievable. Are you like when the Dalai Lama dies and then there's like a reincarnated Dalai Lama? So like some blues man died and you're him? Huh. Like you picked up the right guitar at the right time? You never know. <laughs> <laughs> you were part of the Youth Performance Festival mentorship program that we talked about earlier this week on the show, right? How long ago was that? Oh, man, that must have been... Half a lifetime ago when you were six? (laughs) Four or five years ago, yeah. Yeah, so basically half your lifetime ago. And now you've got... This is your second album out tonight at the Parlor Room, and you've got these stellar... These are some of the best musicians in the Valley backing you up. And I hear, like, making another stop at their their showcase tomorrow, too. Is that correct? Um, Are you going to their showcase tomorrow? You don't have to say yeah. Yeah, no. His parents are in the room, and no. no. But you okay. can learn about YFP, your uh, youth performance festival, at Make It Springfield tomorrow. Sure, sure. <laughs> Where did you know that you got this? When did you know that you got this gift? And and how did you begin to flourish it at such a young age? I mean, I got to thank my dad, because he plays music all around the house, different genres. I mean, there's not like an hour of the day where he hasn't played music. Playing on guitar or playing music oh, on j- records? Oh, just or? like um, Spotify records, CDs, yeah. Got it. And that's really where I got into music. And then at age three, my grandma gave me this plastic Elmo ukulele. <laughs> and that, that's that's what started the the musician. Yeah. Do you still play ukulele? I guess you could say that. But <laughs> hon- honestly, it's been, so, it's been like I'm not as nearly as committed and i know like very few chords at this point <laughs> that's fair and you have a guitar that's sized for you at age 12 and you're yeah. playing it really really well better than i could play a, a normal sized guitar <laughs> right now what um that's the same size i started on <laughs> you work with some really big names too sierra hall and chris Teeley. like how did how did that relationship let's say with chris Teeley, come about yeah so during the pandemic um Chris Steely's show Live From Here became Live From Home, where, like, other people would play songs and it would be, like, broadcasted. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that was during the pandemic, right? It's so long ago. Yeah, all right. It's a quarter of your lifetime ago. Sorry, just double-checking that. Um, And my dad just sent in one of my songs to Chris Steely maybe hoping that it would get on the radio and believe it or not after that it was told that it was going to be on live from here and that was that was awesome that is incredible oh I, you know i think we should do our our end scroll and let us like end with louis play i think so too okay 
Let's talk about what's going to happen next week on the show, and then we'll hear one more from Louis Phipps. Next week, we'll discover some of the ghosts of the 413 with folklorist Jeff Belanger. And we'll honor our ancestors on Dia de los Muertos in Pittsfield at Hot Plate Brewing. We'll bring you Afrobeat next Live Music Friday with BCUC. And hear about how hunger affects the 413 and how we try to combat it with a tour of the new food bank in Chicopee. Let's hear one more from Louis Phipps, who is playing an album release party tonight at the Parlor Room for the new album, under the Sky We Play with his friends, J.J. O'Connell, Anad Nyack, and Paul Kahansky. Take it away, 12-year-old Louis Phipps. One, two, one. Phipps, 12 years old, with his friends Paul Kahansky, Anad Nayak, and J.J. O'Connell. Did you write those lyrics, Louis? we got 10 seconds left. No, I did not. That was <laughs> a um, cover uh, which was written a while ago by, honestly, I don't know Well, who. you did it justice, Louis. <laughs> Excellent work. We'll see you next week on The Fabulous 413. Thank you.